Thanks, Adam. Hey, if you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 18. We're going to work with the last nine verses in that chapter. So we're going to start in verse 35, work our way down to verse 33. This is the last significant or lengthy healing passage in the gospel of Luke. And so uh, we're going to kind of loop back to that topic, which we've circled around a few different times. And we're going to try to draw some things together. And even just talking about healing probably raises some assumptions inside of you. Now, these might not be conscious things. They could be subconscious. You may not uh, necessarily think that, oh yeah, this is sort of the way that Uh, my mind conceptualizes this topic, but let me name a few of these. It's common for us to hold the assumption that all of the healing accounts in the Bible, in the Gospels, are just spiritual metaphors. That when, when we see a passage like this and we hear of Jesus healing someone, what we really are supposed to just keep in mind is the fact that, well, Jesus, by his death and his resurrection and by God's grace, can heal us spiritually. And that that is the extent of of what we're supposed to take away. Biblical healings are absolutely physical pictures of what Jesus does for us in a spiritual sense. But they were absolutely physical healings as well. And so this particular passage that we're going to look at today, if you look at its parallel in the gospel of Mark, this blind man has a name, Bartimaeus. Bar meaning son of Timaeus. Why include the name? Why tell us that it was Jairus's daughter that Jesus resuscitated from the dead? Well, so you could go and ask those people. And if you went and you asked Bartimaeus, he would tell you, oh no, this isn't a spiritual metaphor. I was actually blind. Then I had an interaction with Jesus and I could actually see. Jairus would tell you, no, my my daughter was dead. And then Jesus came into the room and he raised her. Blind people really received their sight. Lepers were really made well. Paralyzed people actually walked. A woman bleeding for years, she was cured instantly. Assumption number two, maybe you sort of think in the back of your mind, well, God is no longer in the business of healing. Like he did that during these times, he doesn't do that anymore. That's also false. And that line of thinking typically comes from one of two places. The first, very broadly, is that we are modern Western people. And typically that means we don't really have a mental bucket prepared in our mind for the miraculous. And so if something miraculous happens, what we really need to be able to do is explain it rationally in order to satisfy our Western mind. And so you just think, I can't explain that rationally, so maybe it just doesn't happen anymore. You might also arrive at this uh, sort of common way of thinking, this common assumption theologically. It could be that you've either grown up in a place or you went to church for a long time in a place where the way they thought about gifts of the Spirit was through a cessationist lens. Now, all that means is that the miraculous gifts of which healing is one of them are no longer operational in the church today. That's not LCF's position. LCF is on the other side of that coin, which would be to say that we are a continuationist church, which would say that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, like healing, they do still function. But it's possible you grow up in a different setting, and so you've just always thought, well, God doesn't do that anymore. And then a third one is the assumption that if God doesn't heal, then a person's faith must have been insufficient. 
that too is false. We actually addressed that directly in a previous sermon where we said what's powerful and effective when it comes to healing is God's authority, his sovereignty, and his power. Our faith is a conduit through which we receive that power, but it is not the effective means. The thing that is effective is God's power, God's authority, and God's sovereignty. With those assumptions sort of lifted up to the surface, let's read our passage. This is Luke 18, starting in verse 35. As he, that's Jesus, approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front told him to keep quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see and he began to follow him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you are powerful, that you are authoritative, that you have the ability to heal. God, we praise you that though you designed this world and all of the intricate natural processes that exist inside of it, God, that you are bigger than those and you can work outside of those. God, I pray that as we look at this miraculous healing, God, I pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to understand the truth about these acts. God, help us to work through our own sort of modern Western predispositions. Help us to work through, look at your scriptures and maybe even evaluate what it is that we've sort of always thought was true. God, speak to us clearly through your word. Show us who you are. Remind us of who you are. Transform us into the image of your son. We pray in his name, amen. We live in a time where we get everything sort of delivered to us in sound bites. So short little phrases, you can cram it all into 280 characters on a tweet. You can get it into one minute so that on the Instagram feed, when the video pops in there, you don't have to click watch more, way too much work. Give it to me in the one minute or I'm scrolling by. That's sort of the environment that we live in. I'm asking for more than a soundbite this morning. I'm asking for a whole sermon to work my way through this. The reason being is that I want to bring forward from this passage one final point from the gospel of Luke and the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, as it relates to healing. One final point that I hope helps us draw some things together on this topic as it's presented to us from the ministry and the life of Jesus. But I'm actually really asking even for more than one sermon. This is the fourth time in this series through the Gospel of Luke where we've taken one of these passages and we've sort of stopped intentionally and said, let's talk directly about the topic of healing. And so if you wanted to go back and listen to the other three and sort of put together the series in a series, I'm gonna give you the dates of those. The first was on February 28th of 2021. It came from Luke chapter five. The second was on April 11th of 2021. It came from Luke chapter seven. And the third was May 23rd, 2021 from Luke chapter eight. 
you can go back to our website or you can go to the podcast channel, scroll your way through, find those dates, and you will have, when you put it with this one, four sermons on this topic of healing. Now, there are more healing passages than those four in the Gospel of Luke. There are certainly more than those four in all four of the Gospel accounts. But by taking those four and addressing this topic, we've sort of put together a series inside of, ser- inside of a series in which we're dealing with matters directly related to healing. We've covered the following questions or issues within those other sermons, like the issue of sin and death being visible reminders of the reality of sin, not of a specific sin in a person's life, but sin in the world in general. We've tried to shed light on questions like, what is the interplay between my sin and my sickness? What is God's role in causing or allowing people to be sick? If God is really good and capable of healing, why doesn't he just heal everyone? What role does my faith play in God's healing? What role does modern medicine play in healing today? The goal today is gonna be to look at this final passage draw out some theological reminders and then try to pull all of the threads of those other accounts together in light of who Jesus is and who Luke is demonstrating him to be for us. The landing point is this today. Restoration is a central reality in the king's advancing kingdom. Restoration is a central reality in the king's advancing kingdom. Now you'll note there that the main point says nothing about healing. (laughs) Restoration. And so I asked for a whole sermon. Don't write me off yet. It's gonna take us a little while to work to that spot. We're gonna do three sort of broad theological reminders, two very specific contextual things from this passage, and then we'll do one application for followers of Jesus. Theological reminder number one. Healing reminds us of the king's eternal character. All the healing passages in the gospel accounts give us these incredible windows into the grace and kindness, the gentleness and compassion and mercy and love of Jesus. In Luke chapter five, there's a man with leprosy and he cries out, if you are willing, you can make me well. Jesus reaches out his hand and he says, I'm willing. What an amazing picture of who the king is. In Luke chapter eight, Jesus is on his way to Jairus's house because his daughter is sick. And in the middle of this large crowd, he feels someone touch his robe and he stops everybody. And he says, someone touched me. And the disciples are like, it's a huge crowd, Jesus. It could have been anybody. And Jesus says, no, I know someone touched me specifically because healing power went out to them. And by the time they kind of sift through it all, there's this woman on the ground trembling in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at her and he says, daughter, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Incredibly tender moment. And then Jairus goes, or Jesus goes to Jairus' house. And by the time he gets there, they've been intercepted by someone who says, your daughter's dead. There's no need to come. And Jesus says, no, we're still gonna go there. And then he tells the parents, it's okay. Just believe. And he goes into the room and he resuscitates this girl. Takes her off of the bed there, gives her back to her family and says, hey, you might wanna give her something to eat. You know, she was dead and she's probably hungry. Mark chapter one, we're told that Jesus is moved with compassion and he heals. In Mark chapter eight, there's a blind man and Jesus takes him by the hand and heals his blindness. 
John chapter 11, Jesus weeps outside the tomb of his recently deceased friend, Lazarus. In Matthew chapter four, there are these large crowds of people crowding around the early part of Jesus's ministry and we're told that he takes time to heal them all. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has a confrontation with some Pharisees on a Sabbath day right before he heals a man with this shriveled hand and he looks at these Pharisees and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, hey, if your sheep fell in a pit, wouldn't you get it out on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees are like, well, yeah, of course we would. And Jesus says, why would I not heal this man even though it's the Sabbath? That's the character of the king, his eternal character. Look at our passage today. As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What he gets is a rebuke. Then those in front told him to keep quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Don't miss verse 40. Jesus stopped. Commands that they bring the man to him. This guy gets rebuked in a similar way that the disciples rebuked the parents who were bringing their children to Jesus earlier in, in chapter 18. The disciples are like, hey, stop, stop bothering the good teacher with these kids. In this instance, it's, hey, blind beggar guy, quiet down. He's got more important stuff going on. And Jesus stops. Bring that man to me. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Like that's the compassion and the mercy, the gentleness, the kindness, the love of Jesus. And remember, while we're doing theological reminders, we're told in the book of Colossians that the fullness of God dwells in the Son. We're told in the book of Hebrews that the Son is the exact expression of the Father. Like this is the eternal nature of God on display in human form. He is gracious and kind and gentle and compassionate and merciful and loving. Theological reminder number two. Healing reminds us of the king's absolute authority. As creator God, Jesus, the king, has absolute authority over the natural world. In Mark chapter one, he commands leprosy to leave and we are told that it happens instantly. In fact, if you just go back and reread the, the first like three or four chapters in the gospel of Mark, Jesus' early ministry, Mark really focuses on the action, not the teaching, and he's going from place to place. It's like this frenetic pace, but everything, we're told, is happening immediately, instantly, or right away. He has authority. What Jesus says happens. Luke 17, he tells 10 lepers to go present themselves to the priests. They're on their way, and one step, they're covered in leprosy, and the next step, they are healed. It happens instantly. Luke 22 I said this is the last extended healing passage. There is one more account in Luke 22. Jesus is in the garden. He's being arrested. His disciples are there. This big group comes to arrest him. In the chaos of the moment, one of the disciples grabs the sword, cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. What does Jesus do? Touches that man and he's made well. That's the authority of Jesus. Look at our passage today. Jesus stopped, commanded that the man be brought to him. That's Bartimaeus. And when he came closer, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you. Verse 43, instantly he could see. What's the point of all of this? Jesus, as the king, has absolute authority. 
it's worth noting the fact that germs and bacteria and I don't know, retinal detachment, I don't, I don't know why this man is blind, but even the very causes of death themselves are instantly obedient to the king's authority. Instantly. And the same is true throughout the gospels for demons and nature and foodstuffs and animals. Like the king speaks and everything snaps to obedience. He has absolute authority. Theological reminder number three. Healing reminds us of the king's present activity. When we read any one of these stories, any one of these accounts where Jesus is healing someone, it ought to remind us of the reality that the king is presently active in the world that he created. He sustains it and moves it forward. He upholds it. He animates it. He put on flesh and entered into it in the person of Jesus, the son. He did not set the world into motion and then just kind of sit back and watch. He created the world and he has remained necessarily, graciously, and intentionally involved in it every single day since. In the book of Job, chapter 34, we're told this, if he put his mind to it and withdrew his spirit and the breath he gave, every living thing would perish together and mankind would return to dust. He is presently active in his world. He upholds it. The reason we walked in here today is because God is active in upholding the world that he created. Three theological reminders. God's eternal character, God's absolute authority, God's present activity. Now, a couple of things that are specific to the context of this account. One of the things that we ought to take away from this particular passage is that Jesus, the king, is not the unrighteous judge. What do I mean by that? You might have to flip. You might just need to scroll. It might just be on the page over. But go back to the start of Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Jesus gives a parable about a woman who is approaching this judge every day. And we're told that the judge does not fear God or respect people. And she is going to the judge crying out for justice. Every day she shows up. And finally, mostly it seems like just to get this woman to stop pestering him, the judge grants her request. Now, Ben preached on this passage a number of weeks ago, and he did a really wonderful job of helping us work through the parable. What are we supposed to take away? Are we supposed to take away that God is like up in heaven and he's like this grumpy grandpa that you've got to just bother until you get your way? Like, grandpa, I just want one Werther's original. That's grandpa kind of candy, right? Just give me one, give me one, give me one, give me one. Can I have one? Will you give me one? And finally, grandpa's like, have one and leave. That's not who the king is. We're supposed to see all throughout Jesus's ministry that we're not dealing with someone who begrudgingly interacts with his people, who begrudgingly has mercy for his people, who begrudgingly heals his people, who begrudgingly goes to the cross just to get them to stop pestering. In this account, Bartimaeus does not have to beg Jesus to heal. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see. Receive your sight. Like his eternal character, his authority and power, his present activity make Jesus a willing and joyful healer. That's who he is. We should pray for healing. We should be persistent about it. That's what we're supposed to see in the parable at the start of Luke 18. But when we come to the king and we pray for healing, 
We do so because we know who he is. We know that he is powerful and authoritative. We know that he's kind and gracious and merciful. We know that he's active in his world. We know that he's a joyful and a willing healer. And so we pray. Now let me give a brief little interlude here. I wanna pause for a moment. We do this sort of theology in the light so that we can stand on it in the dark. What we know to be true in the light is also true in the dark. It is always true that God is eternally kind and gracious and compassionate and gentle and merciful and loving. It is always true that he holds absolute sway and authority in his world. And it is always true that he is presently active and engaged. But sometimes darkness comes calling. Specifically as it relates to today, sometimes darkness comes calling in the form of illness or bodily breakdown or death. And when that happens, we find ourselves doing like the man in our passage today, like Bartimaeus. We're crying out on our own behalf or on behalf of our loved ones, Jesus, have mercy. Have mercy. And there are times that the response comes and God moves whether miraculously or via the gift of modern medicine. And when he moves, healing arrives. And again, we end up like the man in this account, glorifying God, praising him. But it does not always end that way. Other times, we cry out, and the response isn't what we prayed for. And we end up in this place of just total pain and total confusion. It feels like, to borrow from the parable, we're standing before the judge, pleading, and he just isn't acting. In those moments, we feel stuck. Stuck in pain and confusion. Maybe the healing doesn't come and the person passes away. Maybe the healing doesn't come and the chronic illness doesn't lift. Maybe the healing doesn't come and the terminal diagnosis doesn't change. In those moments, when the darkness has swept in, the theology we did in the light is still true, but the pain that we feel in those moments often make it impossible to see. And there are two temptations in those moments. The first, for those of us who rally around those trying to navigate the darkness, the first temptation is to just sweep in with all of our theological platitudes. Hey, don't forget, God has a plan. Okay, he does. And all the theology that we do in the light is true. And you're often standing in the light, shouting into the darkness. But the person in the darkness just needs you to be present. They probably know the thing that you're saying. The truth is true. And there could come a time for you to discuss it. But they need like Job's friends in the first week, not Job's friends later. They need Job's friends who show up and sit in the dust and just weep with him rather than Job's friends when they open their mouths. The other temptation, typically when we're the one in the dark, is that we turn our temporary experiences into sweeping statements. Sweeping statements about God's role in our pain and in our healing. 
Well, he must not care. He must not be paying attention. He must not do that kind of healing. Maybe he isn't who he said he is after all. The most pastoral thing I can say into those moments, and you might be in the middle of one right now, there is profound mystery surrounding God's healing when it comes, when it doesn't. And no one can offer you perfect answers to that on this side of heaven. Not any other pastor, not a small group leader, not a friend, not someone discipling you, not your accountability partner. We can grieve with one another without trying to provide answers. We can weep with one another without trying to provide answers. We can mourn with one another without trying to provide answers. We can acknowledge the heaviness that exists in trying to navigate life in a broken world and not try to provide answers. And then we can help one another retreat to what is the most basic of tasks and the most basic of prayers for followers of Jesus. There's an interaction that takes place in John chapter six. Jesus is doing a lot of this miraculous kind of work and the crowds and the disciples are asking, how can we do this too? And Jesus sort of sweeps the question aside and basically answers a different one. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he sent. Believe and weep. Believe and mourn. Believe and grieve. Believe and lean on your brothers and sisters to help you keep believing. Well, what are we believing exactly? In the middle of our darkness, we don't need all the theological questions as it relates to suffering in the world. Instead, we need to just have people gather around us who will help us believe that Jesus came and lived and died, that he was buried and that he rose and that that means that he is going to have the final word, not the thing that you're currently surrounded by darkness because of. That's it. We need brothers and sisters who can just help us believe that. He's gonna get the final word, not that illness, not that diagnosis, not even that death. He made the down payment on that at the cross and at his resurrection from the tomb, guaranteeing that all the brokenness in the world does not get the final word. The king does. And so what is the most basic of prayers in that moment? I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. That's it. Like when the darkness has just so overwhelmed you, you might be sitting in the middle of it right now. One of the beauties of the church is not that we sweep in with our theological answers. One of the beauties of the church is that we stand here in this room together and other people can sing the truth of the gospel when you can't bring yourself to do it. You just like... I can't stand here right now in the middle of my darkness and sing about the goodness of Jesus, but here are all my brothers and sisters reminding me and I can cry out, I believe, Lord, just help my unbelief. When the darkness swallows us, we don't have to have all the theological answers. God doesn't require that. He isn't looking for that. We need only to believe that the king gets the final word 
when it comes to all matters of brokenness. Amen? Amen. Contextual thing number two. Both proclamation and demonstration are necessary components of announcing the kingdom. Proclamation and demonstration. We often want to push to one side or the other on this. It's either all about proclamation or it's all about demonstration. But the picture that Jesus gives throughout his ministry, the commands given throughout the whole of the New Testament are that gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration go hand in hand. Now, where am I getting that from this passage? Why am I saying that's contextual here? Well, it's actually tucked right into a three-word phrase that Bartimaeus addresses Jesus with. There's this large commotion going by. The blind man says, hey, what's happening? Notice in verse 37 how the crowd responds to him. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Like his human name, you know, Joseph's son. He's, he's walking by and there's a crowd with him. But notice that when the blind man calls out, he does not call out, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That is a three-word phrase that is loaded with Old Testament theology. And so I'll try to cut through to give you the Reader's Digest version. That title comes from the book of Daniel. That's the place where it's used. The book of Daniel, the life of Daniel, takes place while Israel is in exile. They've been booted from the promised land because of their unfaithfulness. They're living scattered throughout the region in all these different places. And Daniel starts writing about this son of David who is going to come. And he's going to accompany his arrival with all of these amazing things that are going to take place. He's the appointed and anointed one who will come and rescue God's people. This is the Messiah that Daniel is talking about. Even more than that, though, the idea in Daniel is that when this son of David arrives, he's going to be the king who ushers in a new kingdom, a king like David, a king from the line of David. And so here's this blind man sitting by the road. He can tell that there's some, motion, or some commotion, this large crowd that's moving by. Maybe it's making a lot of noise. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He shouts out, not Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, King. That's who he's crying out to. Have mercy on me. Why would he do that? How does he cut the corner from Jesus of Nazareth to Jesus Son of David, Old Testament fulfilling Messiah. How does he get there? This man who can't see has obviously heard about the work of Jesus. He's heard that Jesus has been doing the kinds of things that the Old Testament said that the Messiah, the son of David, the new king would come and do. Jesus announced those in Luke chapter four, his first sermon in Nazareth. Read from this scroll in Isaiah. Here's how you're gonna know who I am. This is fulfilled in your presence. He's been doing the kind of stuff that Jesus affirmed to John the Baptist's disciples back in Luke chapter seven. John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to Jesus to say, hey, are you the one who is to come or not? And Jesus says, go back and tell John. The blind receive their sight. Good news is preached to the poor. The dead are raised. The lame walk. Lepers are healed. The deaf hear. That's the answer. This is the son of David. And somehow this man sitting outside Jericho knows. And so when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is walking by, he connects that with this is the Messiah. 
And he cries out, have mercy on me. How did he hear about that? I don't know. Was it when Jesus sent out the 72 in pairs to do ministry? Was it when someone else got healed or something miraculous happened and they went about praising God and telling everyone about what Jesus had done for them? Maybe, we don't know. But this guy has heard the proclamation of the king. Now the king is there. He cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. And he gets the demonstration of the king's power. He gets his sight back. And what's the result? He glorifies God. All the people praise God. And this guy follows Jesus. Proclamation and demonstration work hand in hand and move this man to follow Jesus. And often different streams of Christianity, we wanna swing to one side of that or the other. We do so at our own peril and oftentimes to our own disobedience of the other side. Well, I think it's all about proclamation and that gets me off the hook from doing any demonstration. I think it's all about demonstration and that gets us off the hook from doing any proclamation. But you look at the ministry and the life of Jesus, he holds the two perfectly together. You fast forward into the book of Acts, the apostles hold the two perfectly together. You read the epistles and the rest of the New Testament and the writers are commanding you to hold both of them together perfectly. Proclamation and demonstration. They're both necessary components. And so the king's people today, we should strive to hold those two things together. Unapologetically proclaim the good news of the gospel. The good news of the king and his kingdom, and be unwavering about the demonstration of the king and his kingdom. It's not pushy to be unapologetic proclaimers of the king in word. It is not pushy to be bold proclaimers of the beauty of the gospel. It's not social justice to be unwavering in our demonstration of kingdom realities in a broken world. Unwavering about it. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a subject to the king and his kingdom and I work for kingdom good in this world. Both are necessary components. Both are necessary aspects of obedient Christianity. Son of David, have mercy. Okay, back to our main point. Restoration is a central reality in the king's advancing kingdom. I have said nothing about restoration up to this point. Let me try to land the plane. The main point here this morning is that in light of all the healing passages in Luke and all the rest of Jesus's ministry, restoration is a central reality in the king's advancing kingdom. What is happening when Jesus heals? Well, what's happening is that he's undoing the presence of sin and brokenness as it has been wrought upon humanity. When sin enters the world in Genesis chapter three, part of what it gifts to humanity is the breakdown of our bodies. We're going to die. I've had the sniffles for like a week now, just a stuffy nose, super annoying, not the end of the world, but a very ever present reminder for a week that this body is not perfect, that it will fall apart, that someday it will give out on me. And when God heals things way more significant than my stuffy nose, he is undoing the effects of that, restoring things back to as, as they were in a Garden of Eden-like setting. That's what Jesus is doing when he heals. Blindness, I'm gonna undo that. Leprosy, I'm undoing that. And so this big umbrella of restoration, healing is one piece inside of what the king has come back to do. He put on flesh once, 
came into the world to usher in the kingdom, which is restoring things back to his good rule and his good reign. He will come back another time fully and finally, and he will usher in that kingdom and he will banish all effects and evidences of sin deep into history. They'll be gone. That's restoration. And the restoration that he brings impacts all levels of human life and experience and existence. Lepers are healed. They get their health restored. But he says, go to the priest. Why? So that you can also be restored into worship. Their uncleanliness makes it so they can't go to the temple. You've had your health restored. Go to the priest and get your worship restored. He resuscitates that little girl, brings her back to life, helps her off of the bed, and then gives her back to her family. She gets life restored. She also gets family life restored. There's a gale that sweeps into the Sea of Galilee one day. Jesus calms the storm, restores nature back to its placid state. But what does he also do for the disciples? Restores them out of their state of fear, returns them to peace. In our next passage, if you look at the start of Luke 19, it's the story of Zacchaeus. If you're familiar with the passage at all, Zacchaeus is gonna try to be able to see Jesus. Jesus sees him, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. They go to his house, they have dinner together. Zacchaeus is saved. Spiritually, he is restored to relationship with God. And then what does he do? Restores what he has broken in the world. Gives back the money that he has fraudulently taken from people. A demon is cast out of a person, they're restored to peace and tranquility, not having to deal with that presence of evil any longer. This blind man receives his sight He's physically restored, but he also doesn't have to sit outside of town and beg. He's restored back into his community. Healing is a powerful picture of restoration. The king undoing the devastating effects of sin as seen in the physical breakdown of human bodies. The ultimate in restoration happens when we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus and we are spiritually restored, made whole, washed clean, brought back into right relationship with the holy God. Think about after Jesus' resurrection, what's he gonna do for Peter? Peter, who denied him three times, he's going to lovingly and gently restore him. A central reality in the king's advancing kingdom. When we talk about the rule and the reign of God, the kingdom, when we talk about that rule and that reign advancing in the world, we're talking about the king restoring brokenness in all the ways that it manifests itself in our sin-stained world. That's what healing is doing, restoring what is broken, demonstrating the power of the kingdom in the presence of the king. That's what Jesus's entire ministry does. That's what his death and resurrection ultimately do. That is what he is coming again to do fully and finally one day in the future. Restoration. In all the ways that sin evidences itself in the world, in all the ways that we see brokenness, the king restores We're gonna take communion. If you have one of these cups, go ahead and grab it. If you don't have one, there are some on the sides that you can grab from either one of these little tables. Greg has a tray. You can just raise your hand. Looks like Dennis is going to grab one. Top flap gets you the wafer. Bottom flap opens up the juice. Now, Scripture tells us that... This act 
should remind us of a few things. It should remind us that the body of Jesus was broken and that his blood was poured out so that our sin might be forgiven. That a holy and a righteous, sinless God went to the cross in our place to bear the punishment that we deserved. We come together to remember body broken, blood poured out. We're also told that when we come together to do this, that we are to do so in a somber and reflective way, in a way that reminds us that there was something that sent Jesus to this fate, and that thing was sin. And so we come to the table of communion, and we're told to examine ourselves honestly and soberly that we might repent. That's another thing that communion does. It should do at least one other thing for us. And that's that when we hold these elements in our hand, and we think about the broken body of Jesus and the poured out blood of Jesus, we ought to be reminded he did not stay broken and bleeding. He resurrected. When we take communion, we should be reminded of the restoring resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we take communion, not just in a sad and a somber act, but also in a triumphant and celebratory one, because we know the king is going to get the final word. He gave his life and he resurrected for it. And so I want us to do this in a little bit of a different way than we normally would. Normally at this point, I would just say, brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, do this in remembrance of him. I actually want us to pause for a moment. While we're remembering that the king is going to get the final word, while we're doing theology in the light to remind ourselves of his eternal character, his authority and his power and his active presence in the world, I wanna just give you a moment. I can be almost certain that everyone in this room knows someone who is wrestling through the physical breakdown of their body in some way and could use the healing, restoring touch of the king. I wanna give you a moment to just spend some silent time there in individual prayer on behalf of those people. You're holding the reminder that Jesus resurrected and restores. Let's take a moment to ask that he would reach out and touch those in our own midst who are sick, who are dealing with the physical effects of brokenness and ask that he would restore and heal. And then I'll lead us to take the elements. So you can take a moment. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of him. Restoration is a central reality within the king's advancing kingdom. I want to leave you with one sort of application thought, and it is this. We've already touched on it. We're just gonna make it explicit here at the end. That the king's people are instruments of restoration within the king's advancing kingdom. 
Jesus teaches us how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that prayer, when we pray for the kingdom to come to earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for the sin-canceling, disease-healing, nature-controlling, demon-directing, darkness-alighting, relationship-reconciling, addiction-breaking, idol-smashing, restoration power of the king to break into our broken world. That's what we're praying. This is not just trite and trivial. This is, as it is in heaven, king, bring it into the world here. We're praying that he would do that suddenly and powerfully and miraculously, like he heals people in the gospel accounts. Just reach out and touch that brokenness, Lord. Restore it as it is in heaven. But we're also praying, yielding ourselves to the king, saying, Jesus, bring your rule and your reign into this place by your power and for your glory, and here I am. Use me in the process. I'm submitting myself to you. Think about our passage one more time. There's this crowd of people. They're making it so that this man can't really get to Jesus. In fact, they're trying to quiet him and silence him and sort of move him off to the side. Similar thing is gonna happen with Zacchaeus in the next passage. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that the people that surrounded Jesus during his ministry were well-meaning, quote-unquote, good people. And yet, They're hindering Jesus's ability to restore this man who wants to be healed. They're hindering Jesus's ability to connect with Zacchaeus and restore. My prayer for us, church, is that we would never be those people. That we would not be people who are hindrances to the restoration of the king in the king's kingdom, but instead that we would be people who are instruments of restoration within the king's advancing kingdom. We would be people who proclaim the gospel and the king and his kingdom, and we would be people who demonstrate the king in his kingdom. That we would pray boldly that the king would restore in all the places where we see sin and brokenness. On earth as it is in heaven, Lord, Bring your kingdom, restore the brokenness, Lord. Heal the pain, Lord. Do it miraculously in your power, Lord. Do it through your people, Lord. And then we would submit ourselves to the king and allow his power to restore brokenness in his world. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.